Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. When it comes to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, Legs McNeil, along with co-author Julian McCain, literally wrote the book, Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk, tells the story of New York City in the 70s when downtown was a scary place of burned-out buildings, open-air drug markets, record murder rates, and a place called CBGB's, where the Ramones, Blondie Television, Patti Smith, Richard Hell, Talking Heads, and other now-legendary bands rocked out. Legs in his Dirigur black leather jacket embraced punk, generally a term of abuse to describe a worthless person, and turned it into a point of pride. As a co-founder of Punk Magazine with the title Resident Punk, he keeps his legacy alive with PleaseKillMe.com, a website that chronicles the life and times and, inevitably, the deaths of those original punks that set off a cultural revolution that reverberates to this day as well as others who have come to embody the spirit of the times. He's also the co-author, again with Jillian McCain, of The Other Hollywood, the uncensored oral history of the porn film industry. Welcome, Legs McNeil. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I just wanted to start out with just basically what does punk mean to you today? Has the definition evolved over the years? I know you're still holding on to that title, Resident Punk. So I guess you're the man to ask this question. I I think it keeps evolving, which is great. We tried not to make it too political or maybe even a little bit politically incorrect, but we we tried to keep it loose about the music and about art and, and, and poetry and photography and film and, you know, bad pop culture, comic books and bad TV shows. So. I think it's uh, enduring and uh, it's grown and it's evolving. It's whatever you want it to be, as long as it's not, you know, stupid, <laughs> you know? Stupid. Well, that's a word in itself that has, uh, you know, evolved over time because, you know, yeah, so know. many of the things that we thought were stupid or maybe we didn't think was stupid or was considered stupid has since turned out to be, wow, this is really important. <laughs> you know, maybe this was the most important thing of its time. Yeah. I just read a quote uh, from Joey Ramone, who I know was someone you were a friend with, and I believe even inspired the book originally, in a way, because you had been thinking about writing something on him, and then it turned into Please Kill Me. Well, actually, the, the book came about, Didi called me when he left the Ramones. Oh, Didi, and, okay. And I was more friendly with Joey than I was with Didi. So when he called me, uh, he just came over to my apartment on St. Mark's Place, and I turned on the tape recorder, and he just talked for 10 hours. And I kind of launched his literary career because I published it in punk, and I just used his words. I didn't add any narrative or anything. I think I just wrote a little introduction and and I, it was My Life as a Ramon by Didi Ramon. And Bob Guccione Jr., my, the editor and publisher of Spin at the time, said, 
Well, Lex, you did this. Why didn't you? Why didn't you uh, put your name on? I said I don't want the Ramones to hate me more than they already do. Because every time you wrote about the Ramones, they hated it. They hated it. You always did something wrong. They were never grateful. They were great guys and a lot of fun to be with, but they were just bitter. And in the '80s, the Ramones were treated like shit. They really had a rough time. Everyone says, "Oh, the Ramones are gods." They weren't really taken too seriously. And they're only selling 100,000 albums every time they came out. And Boston, who no one really remembers, was selling like 2 million records. So the Ramones really didn't get their due until after they retired, and then they all died. So just when they're getting a chance to enjoy their success, after being on the road 300 days a year for 22 years, they died. It was awful. It was like a a cop who was a cop for 20 years and then retires and has a heart attack, you know, buys a bar down the street and then has a heart attack and dies. It was kind of that. Very, very sad. But they were usually influential when they went to England, for example. Everybody had to come see them. They blew minds among the musicians, sort of the way with Lou Reed. I think everyone says that the Velvets never really sold a lot of records, but everyone who bought one turned into a musician or started yeah, a band. Started a band, yeah. Yeah, that, that's what happened with the Ramones, too. You know? So what was it about the Ramones that appealed to you mostly? Well, they were, they were funny. They were smart, even though you know they came across being very dumb, which was part of the act, you know, that they were a great rock and roll band and there were no long guitar solos. And, you know, Bob <laughs> Gruen used to tell me that, you know, when Led Zeppelin, when they go in for a drum solo, it was the days before cell phones, he would go out and make a phone, make his phone calls, business phone calls while the drum solo was going on and come back a half hour later and the, the drum solo would just be finishing. The excesses of stadium rock in the seventies were, were quite, um, quite excessive. Yeah, and that was a big impetus, wasn't it, to go back to the roots of rock and roll before it turned into all of that? Yeah, I mean, I grew up on, and most of the people hanging out at CBGB's grew up on Top 40 Radio, and Top 40 Radio in the 60s was brilliant. You know, you had the Kinks, you had, you know, Hendrix, you had all the Motown stuff cut in with the Stones and the Beatles and and all the great garage bands of the 60s. Top 40 radio in the, in the 60s was great. I mean, there was a lot of shit in there, but there was also a lot of great stuff. And I think when we all came of age in the 70s, we said, where's this great rock and roll? And it was all the Eagles and all this country and Western bullshit. And it, it wasn't street fighting man and you really got me and the animals, we got to get out of this place and, you know, it was like, well, where's that? So CBGBs, all these people kind of met up, got back to good rock and roll. The Ramones, the Dictators, the Dead Boys, besides Patti Smith and television and uh, Talking Heads and Blondie, there was some great music going on there. In the 70s, a lot of the energy moved to the West Coast. Like you mentioned, the Eagles, the whole different uh, sound and experience. And when the punk rock brought the energy back to New York. To what extent did New York play a role? You know, it's just a physical city as contributing to that. I believe that New York had been the center of pop music 
in the early 60s and then it moved to Los Angeles when the when Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and the Birds started that whole scene. Even though the Brill Building writers like Carol King were still writing hits for all these West Coast bands like Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Monkees and those people. But it moved back to New York when Rolling Stone moved back in the late 70s, early 80s. Punk magazine that you started with John Holstrom which was a very unusual publication in its right, because it didn't really have a real magazine feeling. It wasn't like thick with ads. It, it was an indie magazine. No, it, was, it wasn't thick with ads at all, <laughs> much to my, my disappointment. But you had comics in there. You just had a whole different way of approaching information, like John's list that he did was yeah, brilliant. Yeah, top 10 list, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. What was your, you know, sort of background for doing something like that? Is, is that something you had played with as a kid, or what were your interests when you were growing up? John was older than me. Um, he graduated from high school, I think, the year I was a freshman. So he was working in town, and he was trying to be a cartoonist, and he got a job drawing for this scholastic magazine called Bananas. It was a, a middle school magazine. He had a cartoon in there, and he hired me to write some of the, the comic strips. I got, we'd get 150 a strip, and if I wrote him, we'd split it 75, and he'd take 75 for drawing it. So it's not bad for a high school kid back then. Well, $75 bought a lot of beer and cigarettes. So, was, you know. <laughs> What about but the records, I, man? <laughs> um, John had all the records. I, didn't, I couldn't afford records. My, I had my brothers and sisters... Steppenwolf, um, first led, first one or two Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you know, Paranoid. What else? And my sister listened to all the girl groups, starting with Joan Baez, going with Carol King, and all the Joni Mitchell. Was it? Yes, Joni. The whole progression of of interesting female singer songwriters, which was, you know, coming around then. So I had those albums, but. I, John had like Chuck Berry, and more importantly, he had the Lenny Bruce, he had the complete Lenny Bruce albums, you know, where Lenny Bruce is having a picnic in a cemetery, you know, the sick humor of Lenny Bruce. John was interesting. John was a real original thinker. So it was easy to hook up with him. Yeah, it's funny because we forget uh, the importance of those comedy records, back then because yeah. that was really something that you had to listen to and you couldn't hear anywhere else, especially if it had any kind of material like a Lenny Bruce and, you know, most comedians had s material like that, that they couldn't perform on the Ed Sullivan show. And you had to listen to those albums back then. How do you, do you, are you into comedy at all today of like what passes? Oh, for yeah, I, I love comedy. You know? I don't follow it as much, um, there's a lot of bad comedians out there. <laughs> Let's just put it that yeah, way. Yeah, like how many fart jokes can you fit in a bus, right? Part of the story of the whole punk era for me is very much about New York City as well. And, and to the extent that that enabled or nurtured or facilitated this whole culture because it was so run down and it was so abandoned and rents were cheap. and Well, no one wanted to live there. It was the end of white flight, all the... People, you know, their dream was to get out and move to the suburbs. That was their dream, and it was 
growing up in the suburbs, it was our nightmare. It was go back to the city. I moved to New York in 74, and we started Punk Magazine in 75. New York was kind of abandoned at night. Downtown New York, there was no one out, you know? It, it, was, it was like this giant movie set, you know, with these great buildings and these great alleyways. And, and the destruction on the Lower East Side was amazing. It was like Dresden after the firestorm. Wow, this is, this is fantastic. You know, it'll be living here in this, in this destruction. And it, was, it's, it just seemed like everything was so cheap and you could afford to live there that it just seemed rife with possibility, you know? And it was. Really? For someone like you, perhaps, but for obviously for all the others who fled, it was well, rife fuck. with danger and, you know. Yeah, fuck them. Who cares about them? They wanted to move out. We wanted to be there. It was exciting. You know, it looked like Batman. You know, you, you grew up watching Batman and then uh, all these other great TV shows, cop shows, you know. New York looked great. And everybody said, how can you live there? There's so much crime. Well, there was a crime, but if you were smart, if you had any, any amount of street smarts at all, you were fine, you know. No one bothered you. Well, flash forward today, so much has happened to the city, this gentrification obviously changing the physical landscape to, in, to an extent that it's really unrecognizable for people like us who, who remember what it used to be. And, and even today when I try to tell younger people like what Soho was like or what the East Village was like, you know, it's impossible to really... Uh, explain that but uh, but here we are uh, people seem to be fleeing again and uh you know there's a back and forth taking place was it the end of new york canceling new york and of course it's it's the people who really never lived you know or never set roots in the city to begin with who are most likely to leave now with regard to that, where do you live now and how do how do you experience urban life i've lived in pennsylvania from about 2004 on I just left the city because it was just it was becoming stupid you know and there were a lot of people who I thought were doing interesting stuff I mean there were still people doing interesting stuff but it wasn't on a, a level that we were doing it so um, I thought it was time to leave I'm only two hours away so I can jump in the car and be uh, of there course but hours. the scene you know for me it was always a Brian Eno called the senius the genius of the scene that was sort of bigger than any individual that really made what what people refer to as this golden age of New York creativity and culture, especially if you go beyond CBs out into the mud club and the art scene and film and, you know, all these other areas that exploded along with the music. What people forget about CBGBs and Maxes, besides the music, it was also the conversations that were going on. They were great conversations. When you have a room filled with David Johansson, Debbie Harry, and Chris Stein, and Clem Burke, and, and, and Lenny Kay, and, and Jonathan and Andy Paley, and Danny Fields, and Lisa Robinson, and all these people in one room, you're going to have good conversations. There's going to be interesting stuff going on. Well, you mentioned Danny Fields, who I've had on the show, and... Partly thanks to you, I'm sure, because it, it went on the PleaseKillMe.com website, and a lot of fans were very 
happy to hear him talk and, and tell his, uh, you know, his adventures and experiences from back in the day. So how did you and Danny hook up originally and what was the attraction there? Well, I used to work at the printer. Freddie Perez had this printer down on, I think it was Green Street in Soho, when Soho was still at the end of the, in the manufacturing days of Soho. And we collated the first issue by hand. And I went out and the it was January, it was New Year's Eve, 1975 going into 1976. And I got like 10 magazines, full magazines that were collated. And the Ramones were opening for the Heartbreakers at this loft called Sea of Clouds, which no one ended up playing because they got ripped off for the money. But I, I brought the magazines and I presented them to Joey and Danny. They were standing together waiting to see what, if they were going to play or not. And they were kind of fascinated with the magazine. They thought it was great. And Danny turned around to me and said, can I get you a beer? And I thought, wow, Holmstrom was right. People will, will buy it. <laughs> I, I've known Danny since I was 19. And he was very patient with me and very generous. Very, very generous. You know, he... He saw that different people were trying to do things and, and he kind of encouraged him. And, you know, he'd stand there and be chewing his gum, being ultra hip. You knew if Danny and Seymour and Lisa Robinson came to CBGB's, you'd have to sober up a little and stand up a little straighter just so you could be, you know, be polite to them and, and give them the respect that they deserved. You dedicate your book to him. That happened at the end of the book. I said to Jillian, you know, most of this music wouldn't have happened unless Danny was there. And I'm talking about not only the Stooges and the Ramones, but I'm sure he got John Cale to produce the first Stooges record and got Nico deals. He put together the Modern Lovers, you know, Danny did so much that I, I said, you know, a lot of this wouldn't have existed without Danny, you know, who was kind of instrumental in getting, it was kind of the bridge between the artists and the, the record companies. He understood both worlds and he could show the record companies that these were commercially viable people, even though a lot of them didn't turn out to be at that time, but eventually they did. Danny had really great taste. I mean, cartoons and television and comics and uh, Danny's kind of a renaissance guy, you know? Yeah, it was great to talk with him. Just back to New York for a minute, because I feel like I dropped the ball there. I never really uh, got you to answer the question about New York today. Given, you know, the state of the city, the economy, lots of, I don't know if you've been back since April when whole COVID yeah, it's like thing. a ghost town. Yeah, it's like a ghost town. You see a lot of the shops are closed. M many will not reopen. I feel like it's like a neutron bomb, you know, fell on New York. All the buildings are fine, but the people are gone. Does that create an environment potentially for a renaissance uh, that was kind of killed because of all the wealth and gentrification that had taken over the city? I hope so. I would hope so. New York is always changing. The 60s, it was one thing. In the 70s, it was another thing. In the 80s, it was another thing. You know, it's constantly changing. That's the great thing about New York. The great thing about the 70s is you could be broke, you know? You could not have a job and survive. I mean, you had to eat pizza every day, but 
Yeah. Pizza was good then. Yeah. <laughs> egg rice papaya, you know? Yeah. And an egg cream at Gem Spa. Which is now closed. Yeah. But you know what? I think they'll be replaced. They warehoused a lot of storefronts and apartments in the West Village. They were waiting for the rents to go up, go up, go up, so they could charge $50,000 a month or whatever they were charging these exorbitant prices. And maybe now there'll be a art galleries and clubs and interesting stuff again, hopefully. Throughout the post-war history of New York, especially downtown, you always had these sort of alternative counterculture scenes, you know, starting with the beats and the hippies and uh, the punks and... uh, Ed Fugg's Peace Eye bookstore and... Yeah, well, that, but then there was, you know, everything changed to such an extent that that really wasn't possible. People moved to Brooklyn and, you know, tried to, you know, do it elsewhere. But the sense of community that was so important to nurturing the whole culture and experience that was there disappeared and you know will that ever come back i don't know i mean it's not going to happen overnight but i hope so but it will come back different and it will be someone else's scene you know and they'll go through all the uh trials and tribulations that we did (laughs) one of the trials and tribulations that i'm particularly interested in and and make you go back in the time machine you know, there's a band, they're all excited, they put out their first single, they you know, they get signed, they get a record deal, then it doesn't sell, you know. Then they break up. <laughs> yeah, they end up hating each other, you know. I mean, one band's story is pretty much the same as every other band. They all hate each other in the end. Right, well, one example then is... So- then they get sober, and then they get to a reunion tour and put out an album, and it always sucks. <laughs> but they make a lot of money on the tour. Yeah. Uh, but talking about bands breaking up, the Sex Pistols are curious to me because I was actually working at the Soho News at that time and had just... Right, yeah was one of my first big assignments and to try to figure out what happened and write a piece about that. And I still wonder what, who killed Nancy? You know, we know the Sex Pistols broke up. Sid Vicious came to New York, which was living with Nancy Spungen at the Chelsea Hotel doing drugs. Um, and then, you know, she was found dead in the morning. Do you know who killed Nancy? It could have been Sid. It could have been. Um, it could have been Nancy. Nancy had, was had a lot of suicide attempts. She could have stabbed herself, and thought Sid would come and rescue. I, I think that's that's one kind, of the stories. Yeah, that's that's some kind of one I believe. There's also a story about uh, a heroin deal. I, they, I guess they had eighty dollars in their draw, and when. They took about, it was gone. So maybe someone could, but Sid was passed out on two and alls. I don't think he was doing too much moving, you know? He didn't know what happened. He really didn't, you know? So you don't know either then, you know, you don't have the, there is no answer. I think, I think if Sid had gone to trial, he would have been found innocent. He died before that from an OD. Yeah. Were you uh, into the Sex Pistols particularly, or did you feel that this whole like British uh, punk rock was an imitation or exploitation of what was happening? Well, in these- you you got to remember, I was friends with the Ramones, so if, and and the Ramones were 
aligned with Warner Brothers at this time, and the Sex Pistols were on Warner Brothers, and and the, the Sex Pistols were getting all the money for their promotion, and the Ramones were getting shit. The Ramones hated the Sex Pistols. I was in Los Angeles, and when Holmstrom and Roberta went on the whole tour, and I was with the Ramones in Los Angeles, and John called me up at the Tropicana Motel and said, Legs, you got to come to San Francisco for the final show in the Sex Pistols tour. And I said, no, John, I can't do that. The Ramones will kill me. I can't go to see, oh, I got to go see the Sex. No, you got to go. So we had a big argument about that. To Joey's dying day, he'd always say, oh, yeah, there's Legs going on about his favorite band, the Sex Pistols. I mean, the Ramones <laughs> held grudges forever, forever, forever. All these guys held a grudge forever. And I had to go on the Sex Pistols tour. Luckily, I picked up the uh, receptionist of Playboy magazine and uh, spent a lot of time in the hotel room because it was a nightmare. And the Sex Pistols (laughs) sucked that night. They really sucked. Sid couldn't play the bass. They had turned into this this punk spectacle, you know? And it it wasn't about the music anymore. Although John said at Randy's Rodeo, I believe in, in... John said there were two dates when they were really, really, really quite good. I, I forget which. might have been Baton Rouge and, and Randy's Rodeo in Texas. But the one I was on, they sucked. They really sucked. And, and Malcolm McLaren, would, did you feel that he was part of the scene? I loved Malcolm. He was such a hustler. You know? He was such a... Uh, <laughs> he, uh, Malcolm was, Malcolm was uh, fun. I was just re-listening for minutes to his opera album, which I actually enjoyed for, for, for listen to once. Again, there's some really interesting stuff going on there. I taught your book, Please Kill Me, at, at Queens College uh, last year or two years ago. Yeah, it was like, a, I know you're laughing. Because uh, I, I hadn't read it in many years. So when I signed it to these kids, you know, and then I showed it, and then I went home to read it myself, reread it. And then I get, oh my God, what did I make these kids do? Because this is like so much sex and drugs, like page after page after page. So how did that become the story? You know, was that just there that you couldn't ignore it? No, we we, we didn't know what the story was. Uh, Our main objective was to go back and talk to as many people that were there and you know they're going to tell you what the book is we didn't go there with any preconceived notions other than you know what the fuck did you do then you know did you fuck her did he fuck her you know what was going on you were in the room you know when 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 iggy calls ronnie and scotty you know in ann arbor and tells them to come over to england you know what was going on you know what were you thinking it was such it was such an enjoyable uh process you know to to listen to people and then to say like wow that sounds kind of cool or wow that sucks or you know whatever they're they were talking about that's what's fun about my job i get to ask people really what happened i think you said that people were so frank with you because they didn't think the book would ever be published no no one thought it would be (laughs) You know, I mean, the last time most of these people saw me was probably on the floor at CBGB's past <laughs> drunk. And then here I come, you know, it's 20 years later. I stopped drinking, you know, in 1988 and went through all that bullshit. 
and, and, and it worked at spin. I, I worked seven. I mean, I really worked. I really, I was there seven days a week. You know, I, I, I was on deadline constantly. Once I stopped drinking is really when I pulled it together. And things happened very quickly once I stopped drinking. I wrote this article called Yuppie Like Me. And it was bought by a movie company and they gave me a preemptive option of like $100,000. And suddenly I'm making all this money and stuff. And after I left Spin, they gave me my own magazine. And and, um, I was really unhappy, really unhappy. And I was really depressed too. Uh, And I wanted to get back to um, what I loved about writing. At that time, it was in the 90s. And the scene was so, it was becoming more and more yuppified, more gentrified. I mean, they put a gap on the corner of uh, St. Mark's and First Avenue. It was becoming very commercial. It felt like, oh my God, this dream of the 70s that I had, that was just amazing, is kind of evaporating. So why don't I go back? Well, Didi came to me. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Didi came to me first and wanted to do a, uh, wanted me to write his biography or something. And um, I said, well, why don't we do it as an oral history? And I started interviewing Danny Fields because I knew Danny, whatever we were going to say about the punk scene, Danny was a major figure in it. And I needed to get his take on what had happened, you know, because I, Didi, you never knew what to believe. You know, half the stuff you didn't believe turned out to be true. And the, and the stuff you thought was true turned out to be lie. I mean, he, he never knew, you know. So I went to Danny, and Jillian and I were friends at the time, and she was working at the Poetry Project, working very, very hard. And I would show her the Danny Fields transcripts. I would go over, like, the Danny's once a week and do about two 90-minute tapes with him. And then I'd go home and have those transcribed. And um, Jillian was reading them, and she was circling everything she said this is much bigger than Didi you got to tell the whole story the stories that are coming out of this and I said well then you got to do it with me and that that's how it started and probably Julian and our relationship started over the book Edie the Edie Cedric book because we were talking about why don't more people do that because we love the Edie and if you haven't read the Edie Cedric no book, of course I love should. it too yeah. it's, it's by Gene Stein and George Clinton it was so immediate you know, you you felt like you were right there. And I, we were thinking, Jill and I were kind of imagining, well, could we recreate this scene in a realistic way that you felt like you had experienced it, even if you'd never lived in New York or anything? That's how it came about. So yeah, we, well, it's a, it's a massive... No one, that is- to answer your question, no one thought it was coming out. No one thought it, and did the publishers, when you took it around, did that, were they interested right away, or did they ask you to take stuff out? Were they, it was, was it too much for them? Knopf wanted to publish it. I wanted to go with Knopf. Um, Grove, Morgan Entrick at Grove was the guy who put it out, published it. We thought what we had done was pretty good. So we, the thing then was to preserve what we thought, like our first meeting with, with the girl, the editor at Grove was um, uh, this 24-year-old preppy girl just gotten out of NYU and with a you know master's in English, and you know she was assigned to be our editor. 
And the first thing she said was, I don't know about the sex in this book. And I, just, <laughs> I just looked at her really and I said, I know about the sex in this book. And if you touch a word of it, I'll kill you. <laughs> and that ended the conversation. <laughs> Did she sure remain your editor? No. No. Okay. Eventually, we there were some very nice people at Grove. Sure. But the, the oral history is a huge undertaking as well. I mean, it, it looks easy when you actually read it and it's well done because everything has been edited to, to tell the story. Whereas before that, you have, you know, hours and hours of tape to go through and edit and, and hone it down. I would think it's a monumental undertaking. Yet you went ahead and tried it again. And now I understand you're doing it a third time. You had the oral history of uh, Hollywood uh, porn industry. The other Hollywood. The other Hollywoods. So what was that like? I mean, you went on the sets or how did you approach that? I became friends with a really good um, porn producer by the name of Jane Hamilton, a really good friend of mine. I didn't want to come in as, as a fan because the, the, the porn fans are just geeks. I knew I had to come in kind of in the industry. So um, Jane hired me to write Marilyn Chambers' comeback movie, Still Insatiable. So I became friends with Marilyn. You know, you wrote that? People, Did you write that movie? Yeah. Yeah. It, it got made? Still, it's around here somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, Marilyn, I think, was about 50 years old at the time. And oh. she put on a little weight. She still was very attractive. But she was she was a hell of a nice person, I must say. You know, She was dating, like, this black guy who was really interesting. He was, he was like a conductor at some symphony orchestra in Chicago or something. Very cultured. Was Ron Jeremy in your book? Yes. Yes, he was. Because now you know he's being... Uh... Charged yeah. with all these sex crimes? That, that's not the Ron I knew. He was always a kind of a sleazy guy. The first time I met Ron Jeremy, I was the assistant director on a porn film. I was 18 years old. It was 1974, and it was called Blow Dry. And it was Shampoo Teases, Blow Dry Pleases. And the first time I met Ron Jeremy, this is a true story. It, it was, I was working at this hippie film commune. It was a nightmare. That's where Mary Heron was working, too, by the way. And they were doing auditions for the porn film. And Ron Jeremy, who was not Ron Jeremy yet, came in to audition, and he blew himself. I watched That was my first introduction to Ron Jeremy. But I, I liked Ron. Um, I didn't know. I, I knew about other people in the industry that the girls were told to stay away from. Ron wasn't the only exploitive and abusive guy in the scene. I feel badly for Ron. I knew him as a nice guy, but he wasn't grabbing my crotch, you know? If, if he had, if he had been being inappropriate with me, that would have been another, you know, another story. And now you're on to another oral history, aren't you? The Manson family murders? Is that still a project in the works? Yes, it is. A lot of these people are probably very old or dying at this or dead. Yeah. Uh, or in prison. So how how are you able to do it? We just went back and talked to the people that we could talk to. So, so there are enough of them are still around? Yeah. And what about Charlie? Now, Charlie's the least interesting part of the story. He's the kind of thing inside the spoke 
that everything revolves around. But the story is much more interesting about the girls and what was going on with them. So is there something you could tell us? No, no, I can't. No, I'm sorry. Because you're saving it for the book. It's explosive. So it's going to change what we understand because there have been some movies recently. You know, there's some uh, depictions of the story. Tarantino played with it. Tarantino wasn't doing the story. He was doing a story about Rawhide or something, you know, with Brad Pitt and Leonardo, you know. You know, he wasn't doing the Manson murders. I mean, he was doing a movie with a guy who <laughs> torches <laughs> Susan Atkins, and she jumps into the pool with the, you know, I mean, that was great. You know, it was once upon a time in Hollywood. It was a, it was a fairy tale about Hollywood. And I think he did a good job. But it had nothing to do with the real story. And there was another movie also on the Mansons? Yeah, I, they, all the others are, are, are... Fairy tales. Uh, well, you, there's a huge part of the story that's never been. And you just give us a little, no. not the story itself, obviously, but I the cannot, aspect that you feel I is not. I give you anything, David, <laughs> when you're not getting it out. All right, Lex, maybe next time when the book comes out, I can get you to come back and tell us more. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.